This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. And we are back up. Part two of Albert Fish, the worst story we will ever tell, probably. Still holding out that he was misunderstood. Yeah, well, we'll see because when we last left Albert Fish, he'd done more damage to the black community than sickle cell anemia. (laughs) (laughs) Holy cow. Coming in hot. And he had also tried to cut the penis off a mentally disabled boy named Thomas, which is probably the most commonly used name for mentally disabled boys. (laughs) Think of all the boys and men that you've ever known named Thomas. And then do a percentage count on how many of them were mentally disabled. 78%. Yeah, right. What the? <clears throat> right. Didn't even know until. But it had just went from really bad to really badder when he had escalated to the next step. Murder. Not just cutting um, penises halfway off of mentally disabled boys named Thomas, but murder. Wasn't enough. And that's called escalation. Mm. You know, if. The molestations of the children, the black children, were like cigarettes. And then the cutting of the mentally disabled boy's penis off. That's weed. Murder is... is Caffeine. That's, that's the heroin. That's heroin. Oh, and now we're into heroin. Heroin, yeah. In July of 1924, of yes. 1924, and we're already being yes. interrupted with what I'm assuming is going I to be a it. spicy coin fact. Oh, my gosh. What? I can't believe it. Like, it's our brains are on sink and fire, like, no. sink fire right now. No. 19, uh, the, the silver piece dollar, $38,000. I didn't know you were going to be talking about I couldn't about. even believe it. Yeah. It's like if you had $38,001 bills, you could buy one. One silver piece dollar. 38, for, it's worth $38,000? 38, that, well, if yours has the strike error on it. Everybody pull out your, everybody pull out your silver piece dollars. Look, we'll give you a minute. We'll give you a minute. And you spend $38,000 on this thing, and then you have it. What do you do with it then? Well, there's, there, there's. No, there's what do you do with there's it? A, there's a case that you put it in. Yeah, but then after there, it's in the case, what do you do with it? You get a you hire a guard, hire a guard, right, and make sure that he has lunch and temperature controlled environment, laser 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 directed. And then how do you have fun with it? Well, what I would do is I would have several parties where everybody could just come and look at this coin. No, 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 no. I would have several parties with the coin. I would probably just you and the coin and the guard. Get a really good flavored drink and. My favorite 19, 1920s era candy. This is how I imagine you throwing a party would go, Most actually. The- this is fitting. You and a coin and some guy that's obligated to be there. It's almost like describing how we podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. I have not. That was good. Or in July of 1924, Albert Fish had just lured eight-year-old Francis McDonnell into the woods while he was playing catch with some friends, and then he had sexually assaulted and brutally murdered him. The police had a few leads, and many innocent men ended up getting accused of the murder. One even died. We went over that in part one. Yeah. But eventually, the trail does go cold, and for now, Albert Fish is free to roam 
the wild concrete jungle of New York City. And uh, I think that catches us up, Op. We're up to speed for now. Yep. Well, I'll call you tomorrow. All right. And that's the end of Albert Fish. Hope you enjoyed this series. Don't forget to like and review. Hello, fresh. Better help for your mental health needs. Uh, fine. 1925 Op. A 16-year-old young man by the name of Benjamin Eisen is sitting on a bench in Battery Park. And Battery Park, if you're from New York, is like, what in the heck and motherfucking fuck is Battery Park? Well, Battery Park was made into Harbor Park in 1982 for you young bucks. And 55-year-old Albert Fish waddles up with his weird gait, sits down beside Benjamin Eisenman, and starts a conversation. Probably breaks the ice with something along the lines of, quote, I'm not that guy that murdered that boy last year. You ever ate any shit? <laughs> so what you're saying is normal New York park parlance. Yes. <laughs> I believe everyone starts conversations there that way. You ever ate a big old pile of hot steaming shit? Not yet. Right now I'm going, I'm Albert. <laughs> Flat on it right after I finish this half-calf latte from Starbucks. I have needles shoved in my into my <laughs> friend's defrons. <laughs> that sounds like a good band name. What is that? What is that called? Fast deference. The fast deference. <laughs> nah. Yeah. Yeah. The fast difference. Mm-hmm. Yep. He tells Benjamin, sixteen-year-old Benjamin, that he's a house painter and he's looking for an apprentice. To help him with a job out there on Staten Island, if, he, if he'd be interested in the work. Now, Benjamin, at the time, he was unemployed. He was looking for work, so he very eagerly hops on this opportunity and says yes. He then follows Albert Fish. They jump on the ferry to the terminal at St. George, and from there they get on a train to another location that little 16-year-old Benjamin wasn't familiar with. After getting off the train there and walking for a bit, they come up on an old cabin, and this is when Albert says, Stay out here for a minute. I have to run in here and get my tools. By the way, no red flags yet. Yeah, Ben's not really going to live long. We were very trusting 100 years ago. 100 years ago, somebody walks up to you, sits sits beside you on a bench and says, I'm not the fellow that murdered that young boy. We were like, okay, this must not be that guy that murdered that young boy. And he's probably never ate any shit. (laughs) And you'll see how trusting we were. Shortly, when a little lady by the name of Grace Bud comes into the picture. But yeah, no red flags. Following this weird, creepy man out to a cabin in the middle of nowhere. Everything seems A-OK to this dude. This is a 16-year-old. We're not talking about a 9-year-old. This one could could very well have street smarts, but not really. He is a little bit intelligent, though, because while Ben is standing out there waiting, an elderly black man walks up to him and says, quote, I've seen many kids go into that house, but none of them ever come out, unquote. (laughs) And this old black man is indeed a harbinger of doom. He really is. A real-life harbinger of doom. A Stephen King character. This is Crazy Ralph from Friday the 13th. We've talked about the harbinger of doom on extraterrestrials. It's the guy in the movie that warns the teenagers that are going to their death. Um, that they're going to their death, but they don't listen. Unlike the teenagers in every slasher film ever, though, 16-year-old Benjamin Eisman realizes, oh, this must be a harbinger of doom. <laughs> and then he runs, and in doing so, likely saves his own life. <sighs> now, Ben does go to a police station. He does file a police report, but nothing ever came of it. 
Shocker. Moving on. Man, you got you think about that though. Like, see something, say something. That was pretty solid for a hundred years ago. You know, it's kind of like. Well, I mean, it makes sense. He's a he's an old black man. If he's, it says he was elders elderly. So we'll say he's seventy years old. This is nineteen twenty five. That means that he was born in eighteen fifty five. Probably not a guy that goes to the police a lot. He's seeing a lot of white kids and black kids go into this cabin with this creepy man and not see him come out. But I was going to be like, why didn't he say anything? Kind of obvious why he didn't say anything. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. 1926, Albert Fish moves to an apartment at the back of 409 East 100 Street. That building is no longer there and is now a newer 13-story apartment complex. I feel I feel oftentimes when when you give us the street view updates on these historical places, I feel a bit of sadness in your in your voice or or. Well, it's one of my favorite parts is knowing where things happened and seeing the location and then wondering if the people that inhabit those locations know the history. And especially when the building is still there. I don't know why I'm just fascinated by that. Do you do it with your own personal life? Like, do you get on Street View and, like, go to the local lover's lane and kind of wax? True. I know every—probably within two miles of my house, I know what used to be everywhere here and what has been torn down for the past 100 years. That's pretty cool. I could drive down this street right now, and you could be like, what was here in 1944? And I could probably tell you what it looked like then. Because of how obsessive I get over that kind of stuff. It's weird that you'd have that kind of like encyclopedic knowledge over things that happened on certain dates. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be like, oh, well, you know, July of 37, (laughs) that tree wouldn't have been there. It's not like that in depth. It's just like I know in general what was and wasn't here. Like you'd say by the year. Yeah, I would say by the decade. Mm. Okay, so you're not down to the year. Like my encyclopedic knowledge of coins is years, very year specific. Yours is yours is still in the decades. You you got room to grow. Yeah, the way that I know where things were and aren't now is more like the way they do carbon dating. Okay, a little bit of overlap, several yeah. years in between. Okay, I got you. But I do. I'm interested. Whenever I find out that, like, when we're doing a, an episode and a and I'm like a serial killer lived at this address and the building is still there. And now it's a Ruby Tuesday. I always think that's interesting. You know, it's <laughs> it feels very the idea much. that somebody's in there eating breadsticks. <laughs> and seventy years earlier, somebody was raped with a broom handle. Yeah, it's true. Five thirty Friday evening, February eleventh, nineteen twenty-seven. A little four-year-old by the name of Billy Gaffney is playing with his best friend, three-year-old Billy Beaton. In the public hallway, what? This funny last name for the, I mean, all the things. Are Battery Park, <laughs> Billy Beaton. <laughs> like somebody made these up. And of the two of these that could go vanished, it's not even the one with the last name Beaton. <laughs> so a little four-year-old Billy Gaffney is playing with his three-year-old friend Billy Beaton in the public hallway. On the second floor of their four-story apartment building at 99 15th Street in Brooklyn, they were neighbors and best little best friends. Uh, the building that they lived in is still there to this day and is pretty much unchanged. Still an apartment building. Hmm. No Ruby Tuesdays, too. Not a Ruby Tuesdays. Not a Bass Pro Shop on Ace Hardware. 12-year-old Johnny McNiff, he comes out 
and hangs around them in the hallway for a short period of time. Kind of weird for a 12-year-old to be hanging out, honestly, in my opinion, with a 4-year-old and a 3-year-old. But, I mean, it's different times, I guess. 12-year-old Johnny McNiff, he was babysitting his younger sister, who was a baby. Hence him sitting on her. He he was never sitting on her, but he he does go out into the hallway for a moment to play with uh, Billy Beaton and Billy Gaffney. And then he hears his little baby sister crying. So he leaves them for a moment in the hallway, goes back to his apartment to take care of his sister. And he returns five minutes later, and the two boys are gone. Now, while Johnny McNiff is standing there in the hallway scratching his head, Billy Beaton's father comes out and asks, hey, where'd the boys go? And Johnny tells him he has no idea. They had just been here a minute ago. He went to look at his sister, came back, they were gone. And then Johnny and Billy Beaton's father, they run down two flights of steps to the street below because they had, they were concerned that maybe they'd wandered off into traffic. But they found nothing. They didn't decide to go check the roof. Taking three steps at a time, they make it to the roof in under a minute. And when they get there, at the end of the roof, near the fire escape, they find Billy Beaton. Now, there was a large wooden cover over the fire escape ladder up, and it had been pushed open. And it was way too heavy for children, for little children to move. Way too heavy. And Billy Gaffney was gone. So it's just Billy Beaton standing there looking down at the fire escape. When Billy Beaton's father asked him where Billy Gaffney had went, the boy simply said, quote, the boogeyman took him, unquote. I'll bet Billy Beaton was haunted for the rest of his life. Oh, for sure. He did. You know, he's he's three years old, and they try to get a a, a a description of the boogeyman that took him, and all he they could really get out of him was he had gray hairs on his lip. Wow. So now we have two nicknames. We got the gray man, the boogeyman. An extensive search for four-year-old Billy Gaffney takes place over the next few weeks. It included hundreds of police officers. They really did their due diligence in trying to find this little fella. But they come up nothing. Nothing. In March, the next month, after he had vanished, a trolley car conductor named Anthony Barone comes forward and lets police know what he saw on the evening that four-year-old Billy Gaffney went missing. He says that at around 7 p.m. that day, he saw a slim elderly man with gray hair and a gray mustache get on a trolley with a small boy matching Billy's description at the corner of Prospect and Hamilton Avenue, which is just two blocks from the apartments where Billy Gaffney lived. He said it really stood out to him because the boy had only shorts on and a thin shirt, and it was really cold outside, and the boy was also crying and acting scared. And it's like, did that stand out to you, Mr. Barone? Jeez. Did that really stand out? An old, creepy, bow-legged man that's grinding his hips so the needles can puncture his insides, <sighs> dragging a crying child that's not dressed for the wetter. By the way, an old man that matches the description of a child murderer from a year <laughs> ago. Does this stand out to you? I had to wait for him to get off the fire, fire escape. <laughs> I thought it was weird that he was holding his hand over the child's mouth and saying, shut up, you little bitch. <laughs> What's wrong with From his guy? belt, he also had a ch- chains that had meat cleavers and stuff planking around, <laughs> and I thought that was odd. He was also in a butcher's apron that had blood on the front of it, and I found that weird. And then while we sat down, or after they sat down and we got to move in, he, he repeatedly masturbated and ejaculated onto the floor in front of him. And I thought that was odd. That struck me as odd. 
But then he told me he wasn't the guy that killed that boy a year ago. And I was like, well, guess I'm mistaken. And that didn't really strike me as odd, but it was then he asked me if I would be interested in eating his shit. (laughs) And I thought that was odd. I thought, wow, this guy's a real character. But shucks, it's the 1920s. We're all a little odd, I reckon. I drive a trolley. I drive a trolley. That's kind of odd. Albert and Billy Gaffney then rode to the end of Hamilton Avenue, and before getting off, the old man asked the conductor there for directions to the Staten Island Ferry. Now, because he had asked for directions to the Staten Island Ferry, police dragged the canals for Billy Gaffney's body. Every nook and cranny of that city was searched, but little four-year-old, two-foot-five-inch, 40-pound Billy Gaffney was never seen ever again. Now, eight years later... In 1935, Albert Fish will confess to the murder of Billy Gaffney, and this is what happened up. You ready? Yeah. He did snatch Billy from that roof. And after getting on a trolley with Billy and riding with him for a while, they hopped off near the dumping ground at Riker Avenue in Astoria. He had painted a house for a man there, Albert had, and it was abandoned. Not abandoned, but currently unoccupied. He uh, walked Billy to that house, which was empty for renovations. And once in there, he stripped four-year-old Billy Gaffney naked, tied him up by his hands and feet, and then gagged him with a rag that he had picked up as they had walked past the dump. He then left him tied up, left the boy there in the house, burned his clothes outside on the lawn, and threw his little shoes in the the, uh, dump, the landfill. A little bit more on that, interesting and also sad. Billions of pounds of trash had been added to that landfill in the years following Billy's murder. His little shoes were never found, but eventually all of that trash and stuff was leveled and flattened and compacted, and Rockers Island Prison Complex was built on top of that landfill location, as well as the runway to LaGuardia Airport, which means that four-year-old little Billy Gaffney's shoes are still likely underneath one of those two locations somewhere. So we don't know if he if he killed Billy Gaffney. We know that he killed him. Where we're getting ready to get into what happened to Billy Gaffney. Oh, okay. Ugh. And right. I know that about his shoes is sad, but to lighten the mood for our antique and coin and bottle collectors, imagine the neat old things that are also buried alongside his little shoes. Probably antique coins. It's probably a gold mine. Old bottles, old medicine bottles and I don't think they would have covered it up if there was a gold mine under there. Well, I think it, they probably It wasn't a gold mine at it. the time. I'm not talking about actual gold. I'm talking old bottles oh. and antiques and things that Rockers Island Prison Complex and LaGuardia Airport Runway are built on. They just built an island out of trash. Gold is pretty valuable. I don't really know if I would say that them mining the gold would have been as valuable as finding some... I mean, I love coins, but I don't know if that's an analogy I'd use. Who said gold? You said a gold mine. Not and then actual you said gold. Not an I'm actual talking gold about mine. old antiques. I'm talking about bottles and things yeah. like that that beside this murdered little boy's shoes underneath yeah, this prison. Monetarily, probably... I'm, not, I'm not sure that those equate. That's all I'm saying. Can we move on? Yeah. After leaving Billy tied up there, Albert gets on another trolley at 59th Street, and at 2 a.m. in the morning, he heads home. 2 p.m. the next day, so he slept in while this little boy is tied up in this house alone, naked, mind you. 2 p.m. the next day, Albert Refish returns to that house, 
This time he's got tools with him, though. And they're a very weak and very sore Billy Gaffney is still tied up. And here we go up. Shit is about to get dark again. And then it's going to get darker. But don't feel bad because we're going to end on a dark note. Oh, okay. Albert brought with him to this house on this day at 2 p.m. a homemade cat of nine tails. Keep in mind, Billy is naked. He then beats his bottom with it until it was a destroyed mess of bloody meat. While the boy is still alive, he takes the butcher knife that he had brought with him and cuts his ears and nose off, and then he slits his mouth from ear to ear. While he's gouging his eyes out with the knife, the boy stops fighting and goes still. Little Billy Gaffney finally dies from blood loss. Realizing he's dead, Albert sticks the knife into the little boy's stomach, leans down and starts sucking the blood out of the corpse's wound. The next part up, well, the next part I'm just going to let Albert tell you. This was taken verbatim during the interrogation years later after being captured. Quote. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me, and I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in it. Then I cut through the middle of his body, just below the belly button, then through his legs about two inches below his behind. I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off the head, feet, arms, hands, and the legs below the knee. This was put in sacks, weighed with stones. I tied the ends and threw them into the pools of slimy water you will see all along the road going to North Beach. The water is three to four feet deep there. They sank at once. I came home with my meat, his monkey and peewees and nice little fat behind I roasted in the oven to eat. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, turnips, celery, salt and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and peewees and washed them. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put it in the oven. Then I picked four onions, and when the meat had roasted for about a quarter hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put in the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so that the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet, fat, little behind did. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew. I threw them in the toilet. All right, I'm going to give you a moment to recover from that. Don't worry. We're getting ready to have a little bit of a palate cleanser from that with yet another brutal child murder. Oh, at one point it seemed hyperbolic, like he was kind of really overdoing it with explaining and everything. But then the last line where he says he he couldn't eat his testicles, he couldn't chew them, so he threw them in the toilet. That tells you that if if he was if he were making this up, he would have you know he would have said I, he I, ate those two and they were delicious. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> okay, all right. This is a four year old. You ready? No. One year and two months later, on Sunday, May 27th, 1928, 
The Sunday edition of the newspaper, The New York World, hits the stand. And in it is a classified ad from a young 18-year-old man by the name of Edward Budd. And this guy's looking for work. The uh, article says, quote, young man, 18, wishes for position in country, Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. Now, Ed Budd, he was a powerful, square-jawed, square-shouldered young man. Uh, He's in his prime physically. And he lived with his family in a cramped little apartment at the back of 406 West 15th Street in Manhattan. Lived with his mother, Delia, his father, Albert. Oh, no. Yeah. Ten-year-old sister, Grace. Five-year-old sister, Beatrice. And two younger brothers, Albert and George. So many killers. There's so many Alberts in the, for, between one and part one and part three. We're going to have, by the time it's done, like nine Alberts. Now, that building that they lived in, that apartment building, has since been demolished and is now an obnoxious five-story, mostly glass building for some kind of tech company called Yext. And it has a Starbucks in the lobby because of fucking course it does. You know, these millennials that work in tech companies can't go a day without overpriced shitty coffee. Doesn't it make you mad? I don't know why. There's three things that make me mad. And that's it. Three. No, three buildings, when I see them being constructed, make me mad. I can't stand it when I see another mattress store or tire store being built. There's too many already. And then I can't stand it when I see big buildings being built and then they have some name like Yext uh, placed on the outside of the building. And I'm like, I've never heard of that. They apparently make enough money to own a whole building. A big, in the middle of Manhattan, mind you. Now I have to know what Yext is. That's what I'm doing right now. I I, I completely, one platform, limitless solutions. Online brand management. It offers brand updates using its cloud-based network of, oh, oh yeah, okay. It seems so boring. It's It's brand development company. Yeah. Oh, shoot me in the face. I've worked Yext. at those, owned them, hate them. Can we move on? I My stomach doesn't feel good now. Don't worry. I got you. Give me All just right. a minute. Edward had been working part-time as a truck driver, so the guy that put this, the young man that put this ad in the paper. But he was wanting to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city and the probably horse shit. I would imagine there's still a lot of horse-drawn wagons at this time, right? Am I wrong in assuming that? It's the it's no, 1928? You'd be correct. There's there's a still there's a good handful. He's wanting to find some more permanent work in the countryside. Unfortunately, though, for the Bud family, the only person that responds to this ad in the newspaper is a creepy old fucker named Albert Fish who had been combing over the classified ads of the newspapers in New York City like a rabid dog and foaming at the mouth. He wasn't looking for a puppy though, or a used Model T, or some painting work in the classified ads though. Up. Albert Fish was looking for a penis to eat. I know that sounds like a punchline. It isn't. He was literally looking for a male to attack so that he could eat another penis. And I would go, I mean, he's got a craving for penises now because of the Billy Gaffney thing. Now, he was a four-year-old, so there's probably not a lot of eat there. But I would probably, if I was Albert Fish and I'm craving penises, go back to my younger days and start attacking black men. Go back to black, because murder is risky, so if you're only doing it to eat a dick, I would go for the biggest dicks, 
So I would get the most bang for my murder buck. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have chosen um, to filter my prospects through painting companies. I would have probably chosen dockside bars. Why? Because there's full grown men there. I think it's important for him, though, that it's a young penis. And they don't fight back. And they don't fight back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So maybe he looks at the penises more like the way rich people look at food. You ever ate at an uppity restaurant where the portions are ridiculous and they're $500 and you like walk away hungry? Yeah, that's how that's how I feel every time I go to Chipotle. Super expensive, really small portions. Are you kidding me? A Chipotle burrito is like six pounds. Diarrhea. I will not sit here and let you mock Chipotle. I will not. That burrito is the size of your head. If the serving sizes aren't good enough for you at Chipotle, you have an issue. What I was talking about is these restaurants that like Gordon Ramsay works at where it's like, would you like the souffle a patin? It's in a delicious vinaigrette and cranberry basil. And we've drizzled it with some hazelnut and jalapeno dried relish. <laughs> and then you get it and it's like, one inch by one inch, <laughs> and they've spray painted it with gold for some reason, <laughs> and you're supposed to eat it like a fucking bird, and then you pay $800, and then you walk away starving and go to McDonald's. What I'm saying is that's the way Albert Fish wants to eat dicks. He wants young little... I would try to eat black dicks <laughs> because I'm about serving size. I like. I want to be full. If I've got to put the work in for murder... I want a big black dick. That's the dicks that I would eat so that I would be I full longer so I'd have I've to murder seen. less. You've clear. You've what kind of dicks would you eat? I I wouldn't I wouldn't even go there. I wouldn't have started this whole this whole lifestyle that he started. But it, yeah, but in this situation you have started the lifestyle. And I'm All just right. asking you what kind of dicks you would eat. You're making this weird. <laughs> I probably ah oh, lumberjacks lumberjack dicks. You would eat lumberjack dicks. Yeah. How many at a time? Probably three. Would you eat four. them the way that you eat like Cheez-Its, or would you like put a lot of work into one lumberjack dick and like try to really relish in that one dick and like eat small little bits like the way rich people are? Would you eat? Would you be more of like handfuls of lumberjack dicks at a time? I've never really processed this. You're I've making really this odd and uncomfortable. Three or four, probably four. I've thought about four. You would eat four, four lumberjack at dicks. At a time. At a time. Just to have yep. a belly full of lumberjack dicks. Don't judge my kink. <laughs> <laughs> at 3.30 p.m. on Monday, May 28th, 1928. So the day after um, Edward puts the uh, ad in the newspaper. Somebody knocks on the door of the Bud apartment up. Albert Fish. It ended up just being a pizza man. Um, ah, Albert Fish, it ended up having nothing to do with his family, so we can move on. <laughs> Yay. You found all that out after looking at it at Google. Yeah, Earth. none of these people have anything to do with Albert Fish. Pizza man's still there waiting. <laughs> Delia, the mother, she answers the door, and there she finds standing in the hallway of the apartment complex, 58-year-old Albert Fish. And he's neatly dressed in a navy blue suit. He's got a black felt hat on, 
and underneath his arm, he has yesterday's newspaper tucked. Um, He's looking dapper, and you'll see why in a minute. He holds the newspaper up and says, quote, Is this the Bud residence? I'm looking for Edward Bud. It's about his ad in yesterday's paper. Delia mistaking Albert for a harmless man interested in employing her son. She smiles and says, you've come to the right place. I'm Ed's mother. And then Albert smiled, tipped his hat and said, my name is Frank Howard, Mrs. Bud. I'm here with an offer that your boy might find interesting. Miss Bud smiles and steps to the side. She was a bigger woman, so she had to take three steps probably. And I'm not making that up. There's pictures of her. She was very healthy. I mean, if given an option, she would certainly choose my dick selection. Large ones, big portions. I don't know. Lumberjacks. She steps to the side, lets Albert into the apartment, and then yells for her five-year-old Beatrice. When little Beatrice steps into the living room, she did notice that Albert's face lit up like he was watching fireworks. And that's when he says, quote, Why? You remind me of my own granddaughter. And then he began ruffling her hair. He then reaches into his pocket, pulls out a nickel, and hands it to Beatrice. She says, thank you. Delia then told Beatrice to go and fetch her brother, the one who had put the ad in the paper, Edward, who was just down the hallway in his friend Willie Corman's apartment. You know, I just had a thought. What? Think about, like, today's youth and probably for the last 30 years have lost out on an opportunity, a memory that we had that they don't. And that is there's nothing cool about being an old person and, like, reaching into your pocket and shuffling through your dollar bills and then handing a dollar bill to a kid. It seems creepy almost. Like, here you go, kid. And the kid's like, what's this for? But there was something magical about being able to reach into your pocket and grab a coin and hand a kid a coin. I think it's because you, you know, can flick it. Flick it at the kid. You can. Ding. Yeah. Into there. And they always Ding. caught it directly in the center of their palm. And they were like, wow. And gee, they said, gee, thanks, thanks mister. mister. And they run off to the soda shop. Shop hay. They had a doughboy hat on. Yeah. That's lost to time, that experience. You can't flick a dollar bill and look cool. It just falls in the floor. No, go. she's always like, why'd you throw it on the floor? Put it on the counter, well, I told you. Why'd you put bring me to this alley? Why did you name her alley? Stop flicking <laughs> dollar so bills. There's just an impala at your feet. So stupid. <laughs> but I do think that was lost to time. It was. Little... It was. Gee, thanks, mister. Kids don't say that anymore either. No, they don't. I like I did, actually now that I think about it, all innocence in America was lost when kids stopped saying, "Gee, thanks, Mister." So it's coins. That's what did it. When, when coins lost monetary value. Oh, weird! When you go through any drive-through now, there's a sign on the window that says, "Due to coin shortage, exact change is appreciated." It might as well say, "Due to." The happiness and joy and memories of the world being sucked away. Exact changes appreciated. Right. Anyway, back to your story. Beatrice ran out of the apartment to go fetch her brother. And Albert Fish's wild eyes followed her all the way out the door. His Now, Beatrice's mother, Delia, would later say she remembered that. By the way, not throwing up any red flags. Still, I watch people around my kids... Like the person that's there is a mouse and I'm an eagle. 
I watch every single movement, every eye. I mean. So your kids are like a worm or a clover or like a cricket. I'm just, I'm saying no, no, no. I'm saying well, what, that if I bring this old man into my into my home and this old man gets all fidgety and like excited when my little daughter comes into the into the picture, I'm immediately like, "Hey, guy, why are you breathing heavy and getting all fidgety and wild eyed when my kid comes into the room? Why are you grinding your hips as if you got needles shoved up your gooch?" So you are an eagle, the creepy guy. Yeah, kind of like a, a stupid fat eagle. Okay, and the creepy guy's a salmon, and then your children are minnows. Yes, but in this case, the eagle cares about the minnows. Yeah. All right. Weird. Well, while Beatrice is getting is gone, getting Edward, Delia Bud gets Albert a glass of lemonade. Let's make the creep comfortable, and they have a seat in the living room. A few moments later, eighteen-year-old Edward Bud comes hustling in with his friend Willie Corman right behind him. And here is the story op that Albert Fish, who is, by the way, remember, presenting himself as a character by the name of Frank Howard. Oh, I was wondering when Albert was going to show up. Oh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah, he says he's Frank Howard. <laughs> he doesn't give his that real means- name. He says Frank Howard. This is what he tells Edward. He says that he had spent most of his life as a painter and decorator, which was true, in Washington, D.C., which was 20% true. That is where he grew up. Mm-hmm. Everything from here on out is a lie, though. He said he had pinched pennies and saved his money his whole life. And when he retired from painting, he bought a farm in Farmingdale, Long Island. He's claimed that he had over 300 chickens and six milk cows and an array of other farm animals that needed tending to, and he couldn't do it all himself. He said he had five farm hands, but one of his workers had quit on him, and he was looking to replace the guy. With a young, healthy man. Probably thinking about this 18-year-old Edward Budd. Yes. Uh, He says, quote, I won't lie to you. The work is hard. But you look like a strapping young man. And I am sure that will do just fine. I am prepared to pay $15 per week. What do you say? Now, $15 per week today is $300 a week. It's not like a lot of money. But, I mean, for I guess for an 18-year-old. It'll do, especially when he's providing room and board. Yeah, well, think of Edward probably sitting there like, 15 bucks a week, mister. That's like $300 in 2022. Heck yeah, I'll take it. Gee, mister, thanks. Can I get that in coins? Can you flip them all at me? (laughs) Hold on, let me put my doughboy hat on. And uh, before we do this transaction, I need to think of somewhere that I can run directly afterwards. <laughs> yep, that's how it went down. Edward very excitedly jumped on the offer. I think that more than anything, he wanted to get out of the city. But he jumps on the offer, and then he asked Albert if he would be willing to employ his friend that's standing there, Willie Corman, as well. And Albert says, quote, All right. There's plenty of work to keep the both of you out of mischief. Albert then told the boys to pack their oldest clothes because the work was going to be dirty and that he would be back for them on Saturday afternoon to pick them up in his car and bring them out to his farm in Farmingdale. They shook hands. Albert Fish said his goodbyes, tipped his hat, and left. Well, I'll call you tomorrow. 
Aberfish didn't make it back to the Buds that Saturday, though, Op. What? He did not. He was caught off guard by the addition of Willie Corman, and he knew he wouldn't be able to overpower them both. The plans had changed. On top of that, he now had two boys to worry about. He knew he would have to be careful with how he approached this situation, how he handled this situation. Also, when he saw Edward, he was already a little nervous because he knew at this time, you know, Albert's getting a little frail and Edward wasn't no slouch. He was a pretty muscular boy. He was already concerned. He didn't want no scrubs. He did want scrubs. Um, He wanted weak. He wanted he was hoping for an 18 year old weaker young man. And when Edward answered the door, he was a little concerned. This was a meaty, healthy, athletic young man that he knew he wouldn't be able to overpower. And then on top of that, when Willie Corman came into the picture, it was like double O-nose. I feel like my analogy didn't really stand up. It did not stand up, no. Well, call you tomorrow. His plans had changed as to how he was going to go about this, but he, at this point in time, is still planning on killing both of them. So on the upside, he now has two dicks to eat, and that's a full-on meal as opposed to an appetizer. You know how you tell somebody to go, like, go eat a bag of dicks when you're trying to offend them? Albert Fish wouldn't be offended by that. He'd be like, where are they? Where is this bag of dicks? He'd be aroused. Yeah. Where are the bag of dicks? You going to finish that? (laughs) Albert spent that day that he was supposed to get the boys preparing for what he had planned on doing to Edward Budd and Willie Corman. He sent a Western Union to the Bud's apartment that Saturday that said, quote, been in New Jersey, call in the morning. And he sent that just so the boys would know that he wasn't leaving them high and dry. He'd just been delayed a day. Then he purchased the tools he would need to do what he had planned on what he planned on doing. He bought those tools at Sobel's Pawn Shop at 2729 Frederick Douglas Avenue. And it's a Popeye's chicken now. <laughs> so that's kind of fun. That's true. It makes me giggle every time because when you when you actually re, when you look up what it is, it sounds like our society has just gone to complete garbage. It's like the movie Id- Idiocracy. Idiocracy, yeah. <laughs> Everywhere where there was historical significance, we've replaced it with something completely ridiculous. It's a vape shop now. <laughs> it's a Popeye's chicken. <laughs> It's an electrolyte store. Plants crave it. (laughs) We get into like season five and it goes from everything being replaced from other fuddruckers to just... Rudfuckers to motherfuckers. (laughs) There at Sobel's Pawn Shop, Albert Fish buys a butcher knife, a meat cleaver, and a handsaw. He spent less than $5 for the whole lot. And he would later call these his, quote, implements of hell. He also buys a small white pail from a pushcart vendor named Reuben Rossoff uh, by the Western Union office in East Harlem. And Reuben Rossoff is not there anymore. He is now a Popeye's. He's actually a store that sells stores. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Uh, now, Albert's fi- Albert Fish's plan was to lure Edward and Willie Corman to an abandoned house, just like he had Billy Gaffney. Uh, but this house was in Westchester, and it's there that he planned on tying them up, cutting their dicks off, as well as their balls, or their little peewees, as he called them. That's, why he, that's what he called balls, which doesn't make any sense. 
And then he would leave them to bleed out, carry the dicks and balls home in a sack. He would literally have a sack of dicks and balls, and it, and then he would cook and eat them. That was the plan. Probably the only person in history ever to have this this exact plan. Yeah, I I would well, I could see a couple Roman leaders or politicians having the same kind yeah, of yeah politicians for sure. Maybe even some today. Yeah. There's a politician on a private jet on his way somewhere to eat a little boy's dick and balls right now. Yeah, and he's on the phone. He's on a secret Iridium sat phone going, Terrence, how are we looking with the bag? Oh, uh, bag is half full, sir. Okay, Terrence, I, I'll be landing in 905 GMT. Can we make sure that bag is full, Terrence? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And Terrence, need I remind you? I know where your grandmother lives. And I'm so glad to hear that her cancer's in remission right now, Terrence. I'd hate to see that go any other way. Yes, sir. Understood. (laughs) And then he leans. He's in a blue tie. He leans over to his best friend who's wearing a red tie. And he goes, the public thinks we hate each other. (laughs) And then he's like. Then they go back to looking at each other's wieners. Yeah. Jerking each other off. What? <laughs> Gross. They're both excited to eat the dicks together, and then they ha- pretend to hate each other in the media. Anyways. And the one in the blue tie is like, Nancy, you're hilarious. <laughs> Get it, because yeah. we in your head, you were thinking it was two dudes. Yeah, but but the well, Nancy would be wearing a blue tie. Yeah, good point. Dang so it. the one in the red tie would have to be like, Nancy, you're hilarious. I stuffed the punch. She'd be like, thanks, Trump. I stuffed the punchline. Dang it. Around 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, June 3rd, 1928, the next day, it's a wet, gray, and muggy day. It's 60 degrees outside. It had rained the day before, and it will rain again the day after. Albert Fish gets off the subway at 14th Street in the same suit he had worn on the first visit. Under one arm, he has a package wrapped in red and white striped canvas. Inside that canvas are the tools of his trade, making a metallic clanking noise every time he walks. In the other hand is the small white pail he had bought the day before. On the walk to the Bud's apartment, it's a few blocks, walk, Albert stops and makes a few more purchases. And his little pail that he had bought, he stops at a little German deli and has them fill it up with pot cheese. You'll see why in a moment. He also stops at another point to buy a bushel of strawberries from a street vendor. And then he stops at a newsstand, buys a copy of the paper, and asks the vendor there at the newsstand if he'll mind watching his package for an hour or so. The guy has nothing to suspect here. He's like, sure, yeah, just sit there. I'll keep an eye on it. But then Albert stands there for an hour with his pants down, just slightly undulating his package in front of him. Is this going to go on for an hour, sir? Yeah. Yeah, it will. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't even go anywhere. He just stands there. (laughs) Shaking his little package. (laughs) I'm not quite sure I knew what I was. Shut up, sir. Please, please. I thought you meant the package that you had under your arm there. (laughs) Only 58 minutes left. (laughs) Sir, I've got to sell papers. I work on commission. Is that that a pin? Why is your dick burned? Is that a rose? (laughs) Is a rose growing out of your penis? Yeah, I planted a seed way back in my urethra. Back. Why are there ears sewn on the side? 
Albert hands the package uh, over to the newsman. At around 11 a.m., Frank Howard, also known as Albert Fish, knocks on the Bud's door to their apartment. Dahlia, Edward's mother, once again answers. Albert gives her the pail of cheese as well as the strawberries that he had purchased on the way there and tells her that they're from his farm. And he had made that cheese, and he had raised those strawberries, and she'll never find a be- some better pot-, pot cheese and better strawberries. She then br- invites him inside, and there in the living room, Delia introduces Albert Fish to her husband, Albert Bud. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Albert meets Albert. As far as they're concerned, though, Frank Howard is meeting Albert Bud. Oh, that's true. So they don't see the... yeah. To keep this less confusing, by the way, I'm just going to say Mr. Bud from here on out instead of Albert Bud. Yeah. Uh, Like I I said, every other fucking person's name in this story is Albert. It it gets less confusing if I just say Mr. Bud. Delia then tells Albert Fish that her son Edward is at once again at his friend Willie's house, but he'll be home shortly. She does ask Albert to stay for lunch, and Albert agrees. Delia goes into the kitchen to prepare their lunch. She was making cabbage and ham hocks, which is such a 19... (laughs) 1920s, 1930s, middle-class family lunch, cabbage and ham hocks. This is still the 20s, too, so it's about to get worse. They're about to have cabbage and shoe leather. While she's cooking cabbage and ham hocks in the kitchen, Albert Fish and Mr. Bud conversate in the living room. At one point, Albert asked Mr. Bud if they just so happened to still have the Western Union message he had sent the day prior. So you're like, you're wondering, why does he ask that? Mr. Bud says, quote, yes, it's right there on the mantelpiece, actually. About that time, Delia comes in and tells them lunch is ready, but when they get up to go eat lunch, Albert Fish snatches the Western Union from the mantelpiece and slides it into his pocket. So he takes it. He's trying to get rid of evidence right now, obviously. And they oh, saw him I do see. this. It wasn't even like... wasn't even like he was hiding it. No. Red flag. Red flag. So many red flags. When they sit down to eat at the kitchen table, their ham hocks and cabbage, they hear the front door swing open, and a few seconds later, 10-year-old little Grace Bud walks into the kitchen. Grace Bud was a beautiful little girl. She was pale with brown hair, big, pretty eyes. She was still wearing her church outfit from that morning. It was a a white silk dress with white stockings and matching shoes. Around her neck was a set of little white pearls. She was a very pretty girl. Like I said, Albert Fish stopped chewing immediately, put his fork down immediately, and focused all of his attention on Grace immediately. It was like he was absolutely tra- like hypnotized. The second he seen her, he said, quote, Come here, child. Which Grace obliged. He starts asking her a shitload of questions, completely oblivious to the world around him. He no longer gives a shit about Delia, Miss Bud, Mr. Bud. Only thing that matters is this little girl named Grace. He says, you know, what grade are you in? What's your favorite subjects? Who's your best friend? At one point during the questioning, Albert is so enthralled by her that he starts stroking her hair while she's talking to him. He then reaches into his pocket and pulls out a wad of cash, actual cash, not coins. And says, quote, Let's see how good of a counter you are. He then starts laying the dollars on the table, on the kitchen table there, while she counts. She counted all the way to $92, which is equivalent today to $1,560. That's excessive. Yes, it is. So he's carrying around a modern equivalent of $1,560 in his pocket. 
When she counts to 92, he says, quote, What a clever girl you are. He then hands her a fistful of coins that totaled to 50 cents, about 10 bucks today, and said, quote, There you are. Go and buy some candy for you and your sister. She probably says, Gee, thanks, mister, and ran out, <laughs> giggling happy to go get some candy. A few moments later, Edward Budd and Willie Corman, the two young men that Albert originally had showed up for, they show up. Willie has his duffel bags packed, and he's holding them. They're very excited. They didn't know it, but Albert Fish's plans had just changed up. He was no longer interested in them. The target was no longer them. The target was now Grace Bud. He liked her innocence. He wanted to prey on that. So he, he, he calls an audible. Albert Fish tells the two young men that he wouldn't be able to take them to the farm until later that day because he has to attend his young niece's birthday party first. He reaches into his pocket, pulls out $2, which is equivalent to $35 today, and hands it to the young men and says, quote, Tell you what, here's $2. Why don't you boys go to the pictures and I'll pick you up later on my way home. This sounded like a great idea to them. They'll go see a movie, uh, maybe grab a bite to eat. And when they get back, you know, they'll go to, out to this new job. They took the money and headed out. A few moments after they leave, 10-year-old Grace Bud shows back up carrying a bag of candy that she had bought down at the street. She had got it for herself as well as her little sister, Beatrice. This is a sweet little girl. Albert Fish, who was now sipping coffee from a chair in the living room, once again hones his creepy eyes in on her. Eventually, he reaches his hand into his pocket and pulls out one of those watches that's on the end of a chain, opens it up, mm -hmm. looks at it, stands up, and says he has to go. He has a birthday party to attend, but he has an idea up. He's got an idea. Why not let little Grace go with him? It's his niece's birthday. They're the same age. Let him take little Grace with him. Hey, you don't know me. I'm a creepy old man. I've shown way too much interest in your daughter. Why not let her go with me? to this birthday party. There'll be plenty of little girls there her age to play with. She'll love it. He promised he'd have her back by 9 p.m. when he picked Edward and Willie up. Now, Delia was hesitant at first, naturally. But when she looked over at Mr. Bud, he said, quote, I'll let the girl go, Delia. She don't see much good times. Wow. It's the 1920s, man. Yeah, take my 10-year-old daughter, creepy old guy that we don't know. Absolutely. Delia asked where his sister lived in case of an emergency, and Albert made up an address and told her, quote, A fine building over at 137th and Columbus. We'll have to leave right away, however. Don't want to be late. Delia then helped little Grace get on her best coat, along with her gray hat with blue streamers on it. Grace also grabbed a little leather bag, which she pretended was her purse. That Something about that bothers me. I know. Just... I'm not trying to be really quiet during this. It's just I, I have to, like, instantly filter everything you're saying with, like, a really, like, I, I, I have a hard, I'm, I'm, I can't really, I can't really think too clearly on this one. My daughters do this. They, they have little purses that, that yep. usually have, like, a few coins in them that some old man has flicked at them. My daughter made a little paper cell phone yesterday and walked around calling people yep. on it. So this is the 20s version of that. It was a little leather pouch. She Grace pretended like it was her purse. Yeah. Delia and Mr. Bud then followed Grace and Albert Fish outside onto the sidewalk and watched the two walk away together. A little ways down the street, they turn right and disappear out of view. Half a block down, 
Albert Fish stops by the newsstand where he had dropped off his package and picks it up from the vendor there. That package that made the metallic clinking noises is now back under his arm. Delia and Mr. Bud, to the surprise of probably nobody at this point, never see Grace alive again. After leaving the Buds, Albert walks Grace to a subway station on 9th Avenue, and 9th Avenue is still there to this day. They got on a train there. They get off that train at Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx, and and there at Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx, they get on another train bound for Von Cortland Park. They get off at at Van Cortland Park. Fish then purchases a round-trip ticket for himself to Westchester, so a way there and a way back. But for Grace Bud Op, he purchases a one-way ticket. He spent a total of 90 cents for these two tickets, which is 18 bucks today. And then the ride was about 20 minutes from there. On that 20-minute ride, Grace sits there and watches the trees and fields go by. It's only her third time out of the city. She is in awe of the open space and the fields and the farmland. Like I said, she's used to this, you know, concrete jungle. At the train station in Westchester, they stood up to get off and they began to walk off. But Albert Fish has forgot his toolkit, which he had completely not noticed. That toolkit that's still wrapped in the canvas. But guess who does notice it? Uh, her. Poor little Grace. She noticed it and yells to him that he had forgotten his package. Later, he would say he found this funny. Because inside it were the things that he would use to destroy her. And he also said that had she not called out that he had forgotten his package, he likely wouldn't have went forward with this plan. Fish then took Grace by the hand and they walked on foot down Sawmill River Parkway. That road is still there to this day. While they're walking, he asks Grace if she, he asks Grace if she was hot. She tells him she is. And he has her take off her coat and hat and begins carrying it for her. A little ways up the road... Sawmill River Parkway splits onto, uh, or it doesn't split, it kind of veers off to the left, and you can go straight, stay on uh, Mill River Parkway, or you can go onto Mountain Road, which is also still there to this day. Mountain Road is. Mountain Road's there, but now it's a Jack Handy Ham Circle station. Actually, Mountain Road is relatively unchanged to this day, because I found an aerial view of Mountain Road as it was in the 20s, and an aerial view today, it's... Pretty much the same, hmm. um, but a boring. But a quarter mile up the road on Mountain Road, Grace and Albert Fish they pass the Cudney Farm, and Miss Cudney, the wife, is outside tinkering with a fence post. Fish tips his hat to her as they pass. Um, this will come into she. She's later lets police know that she saw fish. Another mile down the road, it's not even a mile, and the location that Fish had picked out came to view. And that location is 359 Mountain Road. At the time up, it was an abandoned, spooky three-story house that sat on the side of a wooded hill called, and this house was called Wisteria College. And it could not have been more isolated. Incredibly. It's a college? It's a college? Cottage, not college. Cottage. Cottage. Wisteria Cottage. Incredibly, out of all the locations that we have talked about in this story and will continue to talk about, this abandoned, spooky, creepy, haunted-looking house that nobody had lived in in years, and this is in the 20s, is still there to this day. Of all the places. Of all the places at 359 Mountain Road. Still there to this day where this brutal, disgusting crime happened. Still there to this day. 
And at some point in the last, you know, this happened in uh, the 20s. So at some point in the last hundred years, somebody purchased it and then remodeled it. And it's now a perfectly livable, nice house. All right. What I'm saying is for the next 15 minutes or so, I want you to remember that somebody tonight will be sleeping in the room that what's about to happen happens in. All right. Behind Wisteria Cottage on the hillside, a small wooden outhouse set. It was about 50 foot up the hill from the back of the house. This is all important. I'm not just giving you a bunch of bullshit. A rock wall ran across the front of the house and then turned and ran along its northeast side. That rock wall is still there to this day. 3 p.m., Albert Fish and Grace Bud step onto the lawn of Wisteria College, the grown-up lawn. Fish tells Grace to stay in the front yard there and play among the wildflowers while he takes care of something. He walks around behind the house, finds a large flat stone, lifts it up, puts her coat and hat underneath it, and then lets it drop down on top of them, flattening them and hiding them from anybody that would be looking. He then grabs an empty, rusted five-gallon paint can from the backyard as he opens the back door and enters the house from the rear. Inside the old abandoned house, it was covered in dust and dampness and mold and mouse shit. Wallpaper was peeling from the walls. The windows were disgusting. Light could barely get through them. I'm not making this up. There's plenty of pictures of the inside of this house when this, uh, when they, when they, when all this comes to light. You can see it all for yourself. He went up to the second floor, goes into a bedroom that overlooks the front yard where Grace is outside playing in the wildflowers. He stands there at that window on the second on the second floor. It's technically the third floor. The house is kind of built weird, um, but it's the top floor. And he looks out the window. Grace is in the front yard there playing in the flowers. Later, he said that at the time that he was watching her there, she was picking the, the wildflowers and making little bouquets. Yeah. He then crouches beside the window, puts his canvas wrapped package with his tools on the ground and undoes the string that's holding it all together. He rolls it out. He takes out the meat cleaver, the butcher knife, and the saw and lays them neatly on the hardwood floor. After doing this, he gets completely naked, folds his clothes up neatly in a pile, and puts them in the corner of the room to keep from getting blood on them. Now there's a completely naked, frail, old, skeletony body covered in gray hair standing there in the room. And he would also later admit to, from this point on, having an erection. So he's also hard uh, for the rest of this story. Yeah. He then opens up the window just a crack so that she couldn't see that he was naked and yells for Grace to come upstairs. He tells her he has something for her. She says, okay. And shortly afterwards, Fish hears the front door open. He listens as her little heels clip-clop across the wooden floor and make their way up the stairs. When she gets to the top of the stairs, he says, in here, she had stopped at the top of the stairs, though. She, she felt like something was off. Fish's room was at the end of the hallway. And, re- and sensing that she may, get re- she may be ready to turn and run, Fish hops out of the room into the hallway, completely naked and erect. He says Grace is stunned at first that she was frozen in fear. Seeing him naked, this old man, this old gray-haired bony man with an erection, she drops her flowers, and the only thing she says from here on out, she screamed, quote, I'll tell Mama, unquote. She turned to get down to run down the steps, but Fish closed the distance so fast that she couldn't get even two or three steps down 
when he wraps his hands around her throat from the back, drags her up the steps, drags her down the hallway to the room, and drags her into the bedroom while she's kicking and screaming. Fish later said that Grace fought, she kicked, she scratched, she tried to wiggle free, and the harder she fought, though, the tighter he squeezed on her throat. Once inside the room, he knocks her to the floor. She's now laying on her back. He then hops onto her chest with his bony old knees and digs them as hard as she can into her chest, into her sternum. Digging his knees into her ribs as hard as he can, he wraps both hands around her throat and squeezes as hard as he can. He leans down as her eyes bulge out, and he stares into them. She fights. She digs at the floor. She digs at Fish's gray, hairy chest, but eventually she stops moving. Grace Bud is now dead. Fish lays on top of her corpse for a moment with an erection and looks into its eyes. He then gets up, grabs the paint bucket that he found in the backyard, lifts Grace's head up by its hair, and pushes the bucket underneath it so that the opening of the bucket is directly under her neck. He then uses his left hand and pushes down on her face so that her neck kind of outstretches and lengthens out. Yeah. And then brings the butcher knife down on 10-year-old Grace's throat over and over and over again. He did the bucket thing so that it would catch most of the blood. After he got through the spine, he went to the butcher knife and finished cutting through the flesh and sinew. He stood up holding Grace's head and tosses it to the side and begins undressing her headless corpse. He tosses her bloody clothes into the closet there in that abandoned room. After tossing the clothes in the closet, he picks the warm bucket of blood up, puts it to his lips, and starts trying to chug it. But he said that after three good drinks, the thickness and warmth of it made him nauseous and sick, and he had to stop, He was, or he was going to throw up. He lowers the bucket down. He's now got blood in his mustache. Walks over, opens the window fully, and empties the bucket of blood out the window uh, into the lawn there. He then goes back to work. He begins cutting up the corpse with a butcher knife. He starts at the body just below the belly button, cuts her long ways right below her belly button. Uh, When he gets to the spine, he transitions to the butcher knife and begins chopping away. Pretty soon he had this corpse in three pieces, the head, the upper body, and the lower body. He rolls the bottom part of the torso with the leg still attached over so that it's bottom up and then takes his butcher knife and removes four pounds of flesh from her rear end, uh, and then from the top half, he removes her right breast and a big chunk of meat from her lower back. Um, As he's cutting the meat off of her rear end and her breast, he ejaculates. Like while he's doing it? Yeah. He then picks the head back up, cuts the ears and nose off of it, Wraps all the meat that he has just removed, so the breast, the pieces of lower back, the pieces of the of the buttocks, the nose, and the ears. He wraps them all up in a uh, in an old piece of newspaper and sets them to the side. He's going to take that home with him. He takes the head by the hair, walks down the steps, still completely naked, by the way, down the steps, out the back door, and up the hill towards the outhouse. Once inside, he considers dropping Grace's head into the outhouse latrine, into the hole. But later he admits that he changed his mind in doing this because he felt like it was disrespectful. Oh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. 
Yep. Instead of throwing it into the latrine, he just lays it in the outhouse floor and covers it up with newspapers. He then goes back inside the house. He throws the two sections of Grace Bud's little body into the corner uh, of the room there on the on the top floor, as well as his tools, and then closes the door. Afterwards, he goes outside, wipes his hands off in the grass, and then goes back upstairs, puts his clothes back on. His clothes, are they don't have any blood on them whatsoever. He picks up the newspaper that has Grace's meat in it and leaves. And at 4.15 p.m., just a little over an hour after walking up to Wisteria College with Cottage with Grace Bud, Albert Fish walks away and down the road, now completely alone, with nothing but a parcel of newspaper tucked under his arm. He said that sit later, he said that while sitting on the train back to Manhattan with the meat in his lap, he ejaculated multiple times thinking about everything that had just happened over and over again. At 6.30 p.m., he arrives back in his apartment. He cuts that meat up that he had taken from Grace's body into chunks and cooks it in a stew with potatoes, carrots, and bacon. I think it's interesting to consider that he's got so many problems, but he truly is a cannibal. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean the, this murder was, I mean, originally the target was Edward, 18-year-old Edward, but the, the motivation for the murder was cannibalism. He wanted to eat his genitals. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he's, I mean, he's a sexual deviant as well, but he's just out to eat people. Their genitals. I mean, if you'll notice yes. what he took from Grace's body, for the most part, Very was one of her breasts and pieces of her rear end and some of her lower back. Yeah. Now, what about the parents, Op? I mean, 9 p.m. comes and goes that night, right? And the man that the buds knew was Frank Howard didn't return with Grace. And it's at that point that they begin to worry. He was supposed to be back with Grace from the birthday party at 9, and then 10 o'clock comes around, and then 11 o'clock comes around, and the parents eventually fall asleep around midnight. And they had thought their reasoning was maybe Frank Howard, had they'd stayed too late at the party, it got dark, and they had just decided to spend the night. Yeah, because you do, because that's what you do. My excuse for everything that seems ridiculous in this story is, I was the 20s. <laughs> I was the 20s. Uh. Then he ate his dick and balls. I was the 20s. <laughs> we did things like that in the 20s. We ate dicks and balls in the 20s. Then he cut the 10-year-old up. I was the 20s. <laughs> what are you going to do? It's the 20s. Gee, thanks, mister, for eating my... Runs away. That's the 20s. <laughs> the next morning, though, they wake up, and Grace Bud still isn't there. It's then that they send 18-year-old Edward Bud to the police department at West 20th Street to report that Grace has been kidnapped. Meanwhile, back at Albert Fish's apartment, over the next nine days, Albert Fish eats the stew that he made out of 10-year-old Grace Bud and masturbates while he eats it. He also tried eating the nose and ears, but found them to be too gristly, he said. No shit, a nose and ears are most gristle, most, mostly gristle. That's all gristle. Yeah, I think you'd know this by now. June 7th, 1928, uh, four days after the murder, Fish returns to that old cottage, to that property where he had killed Grace Bud. He goes upstairs He gets the bottom half of the torso, grabs it by its leg. 
He said that that by this point it was stiff as a board. They didn't have any kind of, you know, movement to him whatsoever. He he opens the window and throws the lower part of Grace's torso out the window onto the front lawn. He takes one of the hands and drags the upper torso down the stairs by an arm. And as he's crossing the lawn while dragging uh, the upper part of the torso by the hand, he picks up the lower half by the ankle and drags it too. He's headed over to that rock wall that runs alongside the side of the house that I talked about earlier. He then mm-hmm. takes the torsos, or the upper and lower torso, and throws them over that rock wall into some bushes. He claims on the stand that he organized the body the way that it would be in life with the legs attached to the torso. Uh, because he also goes to the outhouse and gets the head um, that's still in the outhouse and puts it along with the body. Um, but I don't know that he cares enough to do something like that. I think he probably just threw him in there into the bushes without willy nilly. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, back in New York, a massive police, New York City, a massive police investigation is underway. Police found out uh, that the address that Albert Fish had given for where the party was supposedly didn't exist. He had given the address of 137th Street and Columbus Avenue. Columbus Avenue ended at 110th Street. It's like he knew. It's like he knew. It's like he knew. They also found out that nobody named Frank Howard owns a farm in Farmingdale. And with that, we conclude part two of Albert Fish. We'll close this story in the next part, part three. And um, it will come to a, I mean, it, the rest of the story is just as dark as the first two parts. Well, I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's over so far. What? I'm glad. I'm just going to go in and throw up all over the Yeah, it's not over yet. Now. Yeah, should be. Hugs, everybody. <laughs> not call. Not call. I'm not going to call you tomorrow. Oh, no. Give me a call. You got to finish the story. You going to call me tomorrow? Give me a call. All right, fine. All right. Love you. Huh? What?